0: You're listening to The World Ahead with Alianz on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The World Ahead with Alianz on Monocle 24. This special documentary series seeks answers to some of the toughest questions confronting the world, whether it's changing demographics and aging populations, to the trials posed by climate change or mass migration. You'll hear bright analysis and fresh insight from an expert global panel. You'll hear Monocle's editors and special guests discuss everything from urbanisation and education to commerce and technology and how they'll all shape our future. We'll feature extended reports from around the world, scene setters from some key markets, and expert roundtables where we'll bid to answer some of those key questions. Today's instalment explores an extraordinary phenomenon megacities. So often the realities of these giant conurbations and the challenges they pose to their inhabitants, city planners, businesses, politicians and more, are discussed in pejorative terms. But on The World Ahead, we're more interested in hearing from people whose insights and experience show that bold individual decision-making can make a positive difference and on a huge scale. We'll discuss what a few cities are doing to affect such positive change, talk about the expansion of our urban environment and ask how do we cope with it? and we will assess what role both public and private resources should play in meeting some of the challenges. So settle in and enjoy a discussion of some big ideas that might just change your world. You're listening to Monocle 24, and this is The World Ahead. This is The World Ahead on Monocle 24. Currently, there are 28 urban centres around the world, with populations of over 10 million people. And by the year 2030, that number is expected to increase to 40. In Latin America, Sao Paulo is among the ranks of these megacities. With a population of over 20 million people in the greater metropolitan area, the city is known for its famous traffic jams weaving between its many grey buildings. But one urbanist, the city's secretary of culture and former city councillor, has been working to change the image and to make São Paulo more livable for its many millions of residents. Nabil Bonduki has worked on the city's master plan, part of which looked to ease up traffic by putting in bike lanes and putting in more public spaces in the beachless city. Monocle's Brazil correspondent Sheena Rossiter spoke with the urbanist to see how the look and feel of Brazil's larger city has already transformed.
1: The bustling streets of Sao Paulo can be intimidating and unforgiving. (laughs) Sao Paulo's population exploded during the late 70s and early 80s when Brazil experienced mass internal migration from the drought and poverty stricken northeast to the city, considered the land of work and riches. People came in search of opportunity and the city grew and grew with little planning put in place. So that's why City Hall has been hard at work implementing its master plan to update the city to meet modern needs. An Urbanist Architect and the Secretary of Culture, Nabil Banduki, has been coordinating it for the past year.
2: São Paulo, in this moment, passed for a very important change of uh, mobility.
1: Here at Sao Paulo City Hall, Nabil Banduki is sitting in his Art Deco design couch in his office. With his red-rimmed plastic thick-framed glasses, he explains his vision to cut down on commuting as part of the city's master plan.
2: The traffic in the city is very, very strong. Uh, with the master plan, the beauty today in the city is the public uh, transportation, bikes and the pedestrian. And the master plan organize this priority in the urban space.
0: Next station.
1: These changes can already be felt while taking the metro. Although Sao Paulo's metro can still be painfully crowded during rush hour, the addition of several new lines connecting the far-reaching corners of this megacity make getting around a lot easier and faster than it used to be. This is Latin America's most developed and modern metro, and new technology on the yellow line even used state-of-the-art driverless trains. The bus system, too, has expanded under current mayor Fernando Haddad, with an additional 460 kilometers of lanes just for buses, which helped the city earn the Sustainable Transportation Award in Washington, D.C. last year. Cycling, though, is now proving to be one of the better ways to get around this tropical city after 150 kilometers of cycle lanes were added to the streets last year, with bike lanes now totaling. 400 kilometers throughout the city and some businesses are benefiting from this new bike-friendly movement like ro27 the first bike cafe in Brazil and the first of its kind to have a park and shower system but not all Polistanos have embraced the master plan cycle lanes! <laughs> Scenes like this of a strongman cyclist lifting a small sized car out of a cycle lane, which is where the owner decided to park it, have been blasted all over the internet as car loving polistanos have been resistant to this change. But Nabil Bonduki says that people's mentality towards cycling is already slowly starting to change.
2: From the situation of the bike in the city is changing. And uh, with time, more people decide to use the bike.
1: Nabil hopes this trend continues, so the bike lanes can remain even with a change in the mayor's office.
2: I think that the people that arrive in the city will use this for mobility. But it's important for the continuity of this policy, yeah, because uh, it's possible that the new the next government change this policy
1: mobility has been the main focus of nabil bonduki's master plan for sao paulo but creating more public urban spaces is top priority too <laughs> And one of those new and -and up-and-coming urban spaces is the so-called Elevado, or the Minocon, which goes along with the master plan's less cars on the road idea. Here, the Elevated Viaduct now acts as a park on weekends, holidays, and late at night. And it's also produced more businesses, like the Elevado Café, where 31-year-old Flavio manages the venue. We had this idea of opening a space that could not only help other people like artists and upcoming people to have a place to perform and make exhibitions, but we also wanted to help the city, especially this area like downtown and surroundings to become a better place again. And I really like the experience of being here enjoying the area that we want to help redevelop. Sometimes I like to mix this um, things that I like with things that uh, help the area become a better place mm-hmm. mm-hmm. português. Sao Paulo's master plan put into action under Nabil Bonduki's coordination has certainly transformed this megacity's mobility and public spaces. But urban changes have also encouraged the city's citizens to take their own initiatives to make this city that much more livable for all. For Monocle, in Sao Paulo, I'm Sheena Rossiter.
0: A perspective from Japan next, Fiona Wilson is Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief, and Kenji Hall, Monocle's Asia editor-at-large. They share an interesting story about megacities from the East Asian perspective, and in particular, they discuss the brain drain on marginal cities as a consequence of megacities' growth. We've seen that not many cities are growing. There are a few
3: growing, Fukuoka, Tokyo, the big cities. But if you look at the regional cities, the faraway cities, the second cities, um, they tend have uh, in the past had trouble attracting talent. I think that's starting to shift. You know, in the past, they might have just accepted the fact that there would be a brain drain, uh, that they would lose their uh, younger population. But there's been something of a reversal since the 2011 disaster.
0: Yeah, I think we were looking at some of these cities. I mean, you go to places like Sapporo in Hokkaido, Naha in Okinawa, these are marginal cities um, geographically. But they've suddenly become very appealing to young people in a way that, you know, 20 years ago, everyone was wanting to get away from those cities and come to Tokyo or Osaka. And I think there's a bit of a move in the opposite direction. I would say that is a trend that people are realizing you don't have to be in Tokyo for everything to happen. Although having said that, there's no question that the, the great conurbation that is Tokyo and its surrounding area, you know, now there's no gap between Tokyo, Yokohama, Kawasaki. These cities have all really merged. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard to get away from that incredible magnet that is Tokyo. Let's hear next from Ben Page, the CEO of Polster's Ipsos Mori, a regular voice of analysis and reason on Monocle 24 and a man, understandably, with a keen grasp on the numbers.
4: Astonishing, of course, that the, particularly the urbanisation of um, Latin America and, of course, uh, Southeast Asia and China. I mean, just the you know the volume of people now living in these cities. The the cities, you know, places like London now are sort of small provincial outposts compared to some of these cities, and that I think is is, is a huge challenge. And of course, the question we have to ask ourselves is what is the quality of life that we're building in these cities? We've very little planning control. Uh, you know, if you go to Sao Paulo, it's a vibrant city, but my God, is it difficult to get around? And it, is it beautiful? I don't think anybody would really say Sao Paulo was beautiful. Um, so I think, no, that, that again is an, is an absolute trend. And, we, and and again, do we need, you know, these skyscrapers that we are knocking up all over the world, are they the right solution? Or will we be looking back at those as some of the, like, some of the things we built in the 60s? Um, you know, we wait to see.
0: Urbanism and the built environment are regular topics of debate and discussion at Midori House and at all Monocle's global outposts. So we asked Tyler Brulé, Monocle's editor-in-chief, and Andrew Tuck, our editor, why these huge urban centres are so often discussed pejoratively. How do we make sure cities are shaped in the right way? Just on the way to
5: the studio... In London, and it's extraordinary to look at the amount of development that's that's going on. And you know, time and again, of course, we hear everyone talking about a great green initiative. And I always sort of wonder where is the green. So you, know, you look at King's Cross uh, has been you know redeveloped in London. Uh, you can point to I think you know so many city centres you know not just in Europe but you know, all over the world. Um, trees have somehow been removed. And it sounds like a very very basic thing, but it's important because I think we you know I think. That Whether it's civic leaders, whether it's property developers, they need to be on the hook for it, because you can talk about planting all the trees you want, but suddenly you've got this sort of great piazza and you've put in water features, uh, but there's nowhere for any type of shelter. Uh, No one is providing extra lungs uh, for the city. It's somehow been completely removed, and, and yet... Planners uh, are allowing this to go through. I think investors, you know, in these developments, think, "Oh well, it's an added cost at the end." You know, those trees—they, you know, they've got leaves. It's going to be—you know—they're very expensive to maintain. Let's let's pull them um, out out of the mix. So I think that, again, you go back to some very very basic things. If this is the narrative of today about how we're going to have better cities and we're talking up an, a green agenda, well, you need to deliver on it. I think we also have to remember that we, you know, we are in the business uh, or we have a responsibility of developing cities where where people do want to gather linger stay and and cities are boisterous and you know and and hopefully uh you know cities are also around the clock and that means you have to develop buildings which of course consider Noise and and rubbish and all of those things, uh, but but also in a way which um, where you know where they work for neighbors. So if Andrew you know decides to have a weekend party on his terrace, well, someone can shut their doors and it's not going to disturb them. But you know, you can see so often that I think some of the the flare ups that happen between humankind on a daily basis, uh, you know, could be solved very easily if someone would have spent a little bit more money, if there would have been a bit more ingenuity. Uh, and at the same time, you know, and I think this is a, you know it's a much bigger topic as well uh that also can you just go and have a, a very simple conversation uh and and i think we also have to remember that we sh- we need to be building cities which are, are focused on human interaction uh that it's not just driving everyone to the app to avoid traffic uh to avoid no- noise conflict uh you know, there needs to be i think a, a level and i think people need to be able to conduct themselves in society as well That. I go down and say to Andrew uh, oh you know could you turn the music down uh, or as much as uh, I'd like to borrow some sugar that he you know he's not going to arrive at the door sort of you know braced uh, for you know some type of conflict and and I think that somehow that has been sort of programmed into cities that, that you know somehow we always sort of feel that we're sort of clenched for for a fight of some sort when you know hopefully we're looking for you know positive resolutions and and you know obviously you know, making sure that we have a culture in a society uh, you know which which gets along and
6: is building for the next generation I think it's interesting what Tyler says when you think about all of these amazing apartment buildings going up they're, they're vertical streets as we know. But when you come to the ground level, there's often nothing there. There's you know there's a there's a pathway back to the car park, but where is the store? Where is the, the place where you can jumble people up, where people of all ages and all varieties can get to meet and mingle? Where is the space to trade in those those in those venues? And that's what's often forgotten. So here in London there is a whole network of very tall buildings going up in the east of the city. But when you wander around at base level, there is nothing. There is absolutely nothing. There's no chance of you even coming down to you know, a bottle of wine or a bottle of milk whatever you need it's not there then suddenly those become quite isolating buildings and we had these mistakes in the past in the 60s and the 70s so again we should be going around the world looking at best practice where actually these developments do deliver all of those things that there's an element of fitness and sport again we were talking earlier about uh, age and all those things but you know that actually the public realm should be somewhere Somebody who's in their 70s feels comfortable about going sitting on a bench and someone who's 10, year, 10 years old has a space to go and kick a ball as well.
0: And what of these human, these more emotional concerns about megacities and their shaping or reshaping? Where do these come from? And perhaps more importantly, from where do the solutions derive? The private realm? The public? Tyler and Andrew, again.
5: I, I think that, of course, the the public sector, our elected officials, have a role in all of that. and And somehow, when we think about the buildings that we want to develop the buildings uh, that we might be occupying you know those that might be renovated it comes down to a very, you know, simple or, or what looks like a, a very sort of simple set of formula, uh, you know, to judge: you know, is this building worthy? So, is there going to be uh, enough light? Uh, you know, are people going to have their sunlight uh, rights? You know, is it going to, of course, follow all of the the various environmental certifications? Does it fulfill all of the right health and safety standards? But I you know, but then I think you know, cities and government they need to look at also then the human factor. So. I need to then really interrogate that developer. Are you in this just to sell apartments, and uh, and and then at the end, is anyone going to live in that building? Well, then, if no one's going to live in that building, what does that suddenly do for for the community? And I think that can only—that's the role of government. I mean, that is why we have uh, elected officials. I mean, that is the role of, of of democracy. And I think you know. As, as a result, you know, those those are the officials. You know, we need to make sure that you know they're on watch. You know, on on the public's behalf. At the same time, I think that. You know, we need to ensure that also government is, is giving the job uh, to the right developers. And I think so often, yes, it goes to the highest bidder. But what if, you know, what if it was only a difference of, you know, 5 or $6 million, but you're going to get a much better result at the end of the day for someone who didn't come in with the most money uh, for the city's coffers. But in the long haul, uh, if we look at the types of people they bring into community, the quality of the build uh, that goes into the mix, you know, if we measure that, you know, out across a decade, you know, two decades, you know, is that end result going to be better And also, what will the economic upside have been uh, as opposed to just sort of chasing
6: the bag of cash at the front end? I think the other interesting thing is when you think about legacy, for most property developers these days, the legacy they're thinking is about the wealth that they'll pass on to their kids. They're not thinking really about legacy for the city. Yes, they they talk the talk. They talk about putting up a nice building. But when push comes to shove, if they can choose a brick that's 10 cents cheaper, they'll go for the one that's 10 cents cheaper because they think that kind of nobody notices And on behalf of the city, they're not really thinking long term either. They're thinking, yes, this is money while while my administration is in power. So somehow we also have to find a voice for, and not just the people who shout the loudest, but we have to find a voice for local residents to find their inner Jane Jacobs and to come out and fight for the things that they believe. Because... What we should be pressing for is developers to be putting up buildings and for cities to be putting up buildings that are going to stand the test of time. Where are the developers who you saw in the Victorian age who actually had that kind of civic pride? They wanted to think that in 100 years' time, somebody would still be walking through the front door of the building they created and feeling some sense of pride. And I think that is the thing that is really missing from the debate.
0: Ian Bremer, the president and founder of Eurasia Group, the leading global political risk research and consulting firm, is an expert on the long-term risk horizon. We asked him to share his thoughts on the rise of megacities. We asked him first about the importance of original thinking in this realm.
7: Oh, I mean, I, you know, I think that the most important thinking, because it's the one thing you can do the most about, is coming from the people that are studying new technologies. So you want to really understand when and how automobiles and trucks are going to go driverless because that's going to, on the one hand, create a lot of wealth and it's going to decongest cities and make them more livable and it helps you with pollution. Those are big problems for China, for India. On the other hand, it's going to take away tens of millions, maybe even 100 million jobs. And so it's very important for you to understand, is that coming in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years? There are so many different sectors. There's a study done by Oxford University recently, a couple of professors that are involved in automation and technology. That I mean, if anyone focused on the global economy, should get a hand on it. And they basically, their study was that some 47% of American jobs, they believe, are at, um, at high threat of being um, partially or fully automated in the next 10 years. Uh, you you need to understand the people that are actually inside those technologies, how they're being developed, how they're being rolled out around the world, and what it's going to mean for the livelihoods of people.
0: Ian Bremer of Eurasia Group. We've travelled the globe already to unpick some of the major questions surrounding the rise of megacities. Next, we turn the floor over to some more renowned international authorities for something of a roundtable discussion on some of the key themes. The world ahead welcomed the architect and writer Christopher Choa, who's director of urban development at ACOM, an international land development and infrastructure consultancy, and we were joined too by Anthony Greenberg, urban planner at Urban Strategies Inc. in Toronto.
8: Well, I think the the magic of cities, of course, is that it's probably one of the greatest inventions in all uh, humankind. And no one is forcing anybody to move to these cities. People are moving on their own. Uh, and if anything, uh, the disruption happens when people are forced to move away from the city. So people are attracted to people and, and cities are the greatest expression of that desire.
0: Uh, Anthony what's your view sitting in Toronto as you as you do obviously your your interest your 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 career is in strategizing around urban environments do the challenges that that throw up delight you every day or do you often feel I don't know uh, is it burdensome at all how how do you how would you characterize it every
3: day I am conflicted between No, feeling challenged and stimulated and also feeling like I have no idea what I'm doing (laughs) because there's a new complex problem every day. But at the end of the day, I do know what I'm doing. I I was actually just going to agree with Christopher's comments that there's sort of this dualism. There's this desire to move to the city, which is creating this... The, these megacities and, uh, you know, among other factors, of course. But I think a lot of the dissension is, is really the people who were in the cities before they were megacities. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones who, who are doing the griping, and there's very valid reasons for that. And in Toronto, where the rapid growth has been, you know, somewhat more recent than, um, you know, obviously many cities uh, in Europe and elsewhere in the world, uh, it's really interesting to observe that shift on the ground every day.
8: Yeah, Anthony is talking about the people who are in the cities first, and I would agree. The issues and the tensions often come from this displacement of people who are moving in in this very, very rapidly urbanizing and globalizing age, and those who are, you know, coming in for the very first time and and really are seeking all those those virtues that the people who've been living there have had for quite some time.
0: Uh, Well, Anthony, if I could just cross back to you then, if we're looking at, you know models of how these sorts of questions are being addressed very constructively or positively. Where do we look? Do, do you look for individual case studies? Do you try to find cities that are affecting positive change and doing well? Or do you think it's necessary to take a much more broad brush approach and, and try and adopt you know different strands of strategy from different case studies? Right.
3: You know, I think it's a combination. Um, We do, or I do in my work, uh, a lot of looking at precedents of where are things working, what's been successful, etc. But you have to always, first and foremost, be considering where you're at and what makes that place distinct. And no precedent can be completely transplanted from one place to another. Uh, So it's really a combination of having a knowledge of of what's going on, uh, thinking critically. And then what I think is the most important part is, you know, true engagement with the people who you're gonna be affecting. Mm -hmm. And depending on the scale of the issue or the problem, that's, you know, easier or harder to do.
0: Uh, Christopher, it's interesting that uh, Anthony mentions there this idea of critical thinking. How would you gauge the quality of of critical thinking, whether it's by mayors in these big metropolises, by central government or regional government, depending? is it, is it good enough? Obviously, we can't, we can't write off you know, an entire sort of you know, global decision-making process, but broadly speaking, where these challenges are most uh, intense, is the decision-making, are these kind of processes up to scratch?
8: Well, I think one of the very, very first things to consider, uh, as far as critical thinking goes, is that we collectively don't really understand cities that well. We don't even know how big they are. Uh, if you look at all the global city rankings, you have populations listed. But these are some kind of approximation between the legal boundaries of the city and the urban area, the functional economic movements within a city. So it's very hard to have a joined-up uh, critical approach if you don't even understand how big you are or how many people you are. And we're all starting to come to grips with that kind of thing. The other thing that's, that's kind of interesting is that you can draw some kind of distinction between uh, what we can call making cities and made cities. There are some cities that are, have been very established for a very long time, sometimes for, for centuries, and effectively they are secure, they're stable, um, and typically they're dominated by lifestyle, uh, by public realm, it's where you go after you've made money to retire, to buy a house, and there's generally not a lot of economic dynamism for those kinds of cities. Mm-hmm. But we're starting to see all across the world, especially uh, in the East, the creation of what we can call making cities. These are people who are moving to a a city to make their fortunes, to make their wealth. They're often not from there. Um, Maybe there's a a big uh, resource extraction economy or uh, a big manufacturing economy. And these kind of cities act very differently. They're very, very young. They're very dynamic. They're often very uncoordinated But this is really where the future is, and we're starting to see this big rebalancing away from established cities into emerging geographies and making cities.
0: Um, We're a little short of time, so I did want to just finally ask you both a a little bit about a perspective maybe on emerging markets, megacities specifically. And Anthony, perhaps we can come to you. uh, First of all, just briefly, do you think that the challenges that face the people who are running these kinds of cities or looking to strategize around their problems, are they very different necessarily in emerging markets? Or do you think some of the theory, some of the issues we've been talking about here are universal in some respects? Uh,
3: no, I mean, I think that there's a when we're talking uh, sort of more at the more regional scale and, and growth management, I think that. Regardless of the scale of the city, it's just any city that's growing, uh, the ways to manage that uh, can, can be applied broadly. Of course, every city has its own issue. And I think probably the biggest difference is or where things aren't transferable is, you know, the Western versus the Eastern world. Um, and where there's just a whole suite of additional and different sorts of issues and different governance systems where things need to be ap- approached differently. But I think there's certainly a lot of strategies and tools that any city uh, can learn from one another. But it's you you are always looking at cities that have, you know, certain economic uh, and governmental uh you know, sort of structures in common. Mm.
0: Uh, well, Christopher, and j- just to ask you, I guess, the same question, if you're tasked with exploring or trying to explain the complexities of infrastructure or particular dynamics in a city, where do you start? Do you need to kind of immerse yourself in the local, or do you feel that you can bring some of the grand theorizing, and it's always it always has a utility?
8: I think your question is also about scale scalability. Can you take an approach and can it be scaled? I think... Um, we have to be prepared in this century to think about very, very large numbers. So Toronto region is maybe upwards of about five million, but if you think about the top twenty megacities in the world, so these are cities that are all around, you know, fifteen million and more. Um, there, there, are several things that qualify them. One is the sheer size. So you, you have places like, uh, uh, you know, enormous places like, like. Uh, Tokyo or, or Jakarta that have 38, uh, 38 million people in the metropolitan region. So that's these are many orders uh, of magnitude, more than what most people think about as cities. But you also have another very important characteristic, which is population density. So say Toronto and, uh, and New York probably have roughly equivalent densities, about 1,000, know, 1,500, uh, 1,800 people per square kilometer uh, living in those cities. But you can look at places like uh, Dhaka in Bangladesh that has forty. 3,000 people living uh, per square kilometre. And this is where we have to think in very, very new ways about infrastructure and equity and the movement of people. And some of our first world solutions don't necessarily translate there. It's not just a cultural issue, it's a big number issue.
0: The architect and writer Christopher Choa from ACOM, Land Development and Infrastructure Consultancy, and Anthony Greenberg, urban planner at Urban Strategies, Inc. in Toronto. And that is just about all we have time for on this edition of The World Ahead with Allianz. Next time you'll hear why making things and keeping it simple could be the answer to the planet's most complex challenges. So tune in again when we explore the power of simple on the world ahead. Listen again and find out more on the show page at monocle.com slash radio or catch up via your preferred platform. The World Ahead with Allianz on Monocle 24.